0: Do we see you at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Beuzeau, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. Today, we have an absolute solar energy legend joining the podcast and sharing why he is so excited about the nature recovery industry. And obviously, Region Egg is part of that. And what we can learn from the solar industry as they went from being laughed out of the room by the fossil fuel companies and government to the cheapest form without subsidies in many places. And it became highly investable and bankable. This is the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast, Investing as if the Planet Mattered where we talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why my focus on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land and our sea, grow our food, what we eat, wear and consume. And it's time that we as investors, big and small, and consumers, start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. To make it easy for fans to support our work, we launched our membership community. And so many of you have joined us as a member. Thank you. If our work created value for you, and if you have the means, and only if you have the means, consider joining us. Find out more on gumroad.com slash investing in Regen that is camro.com slash investing in Regen or find the link below. Welcome to another episode today with Solar Pioneer who founded Solar Century, which he started when no one, but really no one believed in solar energy or renewables for that matters. Now he's doing the same in biodiversity through Highland rewilding. Betting on a market to develop in the future, so I'm very, very excited to have Jeremy Leggett here on the show today. Welcome, Jeremy. Thank you. And to start with a question, because you sold Solar Century after not a century, but after uh, a good run. of, I think it was 20 plus years, and you've seen it all in in renewables, basically. I mean, if people want to know more about that, I will put your website in the description below, where you you kept a blog, you kept very interesting newsletters over the years, basically battling the gigantic uh, fossil fuel companies. And it's been fascinating to follow that over the last 15 years, I think. But you sold it. You had a. a you, you didn't need to do this. You could have bought a boat or an estate, which you actually did, and, and basically maybe continue to write letters from there. But you decided not to do that and, and potentially be even more busy than you were before. Uh, where did that drive come from or where where did your energy come from to to go at it again but in a quite different sector
1: well terror really (laughs) about climate change and i've been a climate campaigner for more than three decades i consider myself to be such even though you know nominally i'm a green businessman i'm only a green businessman because um, I see it as a great ve- vehicle for campaigning. And I could have continued after the sale of Solar Century, you know, in some renewables role, some solar role. Um, uh, there's lots to do still, of course. But the, um, the attraction of, you know, even if we get all the solar, wind, batteries, EVs that we need, we're still going to have to take carbon down out of the atmosphere in large quantities, and we have to do it in a way that you know doesn't continue this dreadful collapse of biodiversity. So um, uh, that's what I thought. I, I'll, I'll have another. I'll have a go at another campaign. I'm, I'm not going to go and buy a yacht and sail off somewhere, and you know get bored and mortified with guilt as the world goes to hell in a handcart. I'm going to keep fighting, and so that's the motivation, Ken.
0: And you could have done, I mean, you've, you sort of, I wouldn't say repeating the playbook, but you could have done a campaign campaign, like a non-profit approach, and biodiversity seemed to be reaching a, a tipping point as well, both on the negative side and on the attention side, finally, luckily. Um, but you've decided, no, I, I will find, found a company again to, uh, to build almost an industry or to build a sector or be part of the, the builders in this space. Um Why that compared to uh, using the the exit you had to to finance others or to finance um, some kind of uh, public public awareness campaign around biodiversity, What was the, the reasoning around that?
1: Well, the, the main reason is that if we're going to solve this um, twin problem of climate change and biodiversity collapse, we're, we're going to have to bring private capital to the embryonic, nature recovery industry. In the same way, in the early days of solar, you know, the key was uh, the big financial players smelling the coffee to the extent that they started investing. And I saw that I lived through that I was part of it with, you know, all the compadres I had in the solar industry. So I thought, you know, there's an opportunity to try and and really repeat the repeat that trick. And, and it's, it, it hasn't happened yet. I mean, the the Green Finance Institute estimated last year that we would need tens of billions of pounds in the UK alone to hit the um, nature recovery targets that governments have set. And of course, now codified in the treaty that was agreed in, in Montreal in December, thank, thank God. Um, but you know that's an Everest. Scotland is 30, the figure is twenty billion pounds, so that's an Everest to climb. We're not even in the foothills, and so uh, you know I figure that uh, a company like Highlands Rewilding um, has the chance to lead an expeditionary force into the foothills and encourage people that ultimately this can happen. This can happen that these vast sums of money can be raised. They were raised for the solar industry. Uh, let's repeat the trick. So that's that's my thinking.
0: And so it's really that is the playbook: how to get the the, the enormous amounts of money available um, for investments in uh, in let's say the institutional capital uh, institutes around the world, the big insurance companies, banks, etc. Yeah. To to start taking this seriously, you've seen that in solar. That took a while. Like, what are the crucial steps there? You say we're in the foothills or we're, we're leading an expedition to the foothills. We're not even there yet. And what are the crucial steps to to get to the level where this is an investable assets also for people working in the city of London or in New York or in, in Amsterdam or in Tokyo or Singapore? I mean, the, the large glass buildings, basically, that uh, much of the money resides
1: well, at one level, it's it's really simple. You have to come up with a business plan that they can persuade themselves is uh, more of an opportunity than a risk. <laughs> it's, it's as simple as that. And we have to be aware that most of these folk are not amenable to the argument that the biggest risk they face is uh, continuing climate meltdown and biodiversity collapse, which will leave them with nothing worth investing in. Ever again, that that argument doesn't play with these folks. It should, but it doesn't. Okay, um, you've tried. S- I, I know. Yeah. So you have to uh, you you have to uh, come up with a plan and uh, and make a persuading uh, a persuasive case. And I think. Um, We are really close to that in Highlands Rewilding. I'm talking currently to big financial institutions and they are pondering actively um, really major investments, eight-figure investments uh, on a continuing basis that would provide the kind of capital that would turbocharge um, an entity like ours, the purpose of which is Nature recovery and community prosperity by taking rewilding to scale. So I can smell that development around the corner. I don't think we're quite there yet. We're still going to need, you know, if you like the the angel investing community, the types of folk who got Highlands Rewilding going um, to, you know, do another round, probably lead in another round to get to the point where the big institutions will say yes, but I really believe they're not far off.
0: And, and, and um, is it different uh, than solar? Like, do you feel, what are the main differences it, that you've it, seen it feels compared to oh, very that movement?
1: It feels, it feels the same. It smells the same. You know, there was a period um, in the early noughties where you could see the financial institutions, Transitioning from you know their starting argument, which was oh get a life man you know this solar rubbish is never going to be economic you know I, I heard that all the time uh, you know we're not even going to listen to your case um, and then all of a sudden you know more and more solar was appearing and the the costs were going down dramatically and you could see the financial institutions sort of looking looking at each other saying hey there could be a big opportunity here and wondering which one was going to jump first. And, you know, then ultimately um, we got to the tipping point and they all started jumping. And that's when the whole thing took off. And the good folk who'd really pushed it in the early early days, uh, the high net worth individuals, the, the family offices, the foundations, you know, the, these these sorts of folk that have started Highlands Rewilding off in our 50 foundations They've seen it as well, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they they were then able to say, well, terrific, you know, we, we help make this happen. And I think it's going to be the same playbook again with the embryonic nature recovery industry.
0: And, and that's in terms of differences, because, of course, in solar, you could start seeing these curve cost curve coming down and, and every year they're uh, we beat basically the the estimates of the international energy Agency which is just hilarious if you look at those figures um how off they were and and those cost curves just kept plummeting so of course people started to smell opportunity in this case, I don't see a cost curve like a technical cost curve plummeting as well for sure we get way better at at restoration regeneration etc over time but there's also this enormous need of uh, doing it now as soon as possible. So w- what are the big differences there as it's not such a technical cost curve plummeting that you could, okay, say in five years, we think it's there or in two years, we think it's there. Um, is this more of a, a government or like national policies, like you just said, was codified? Luckily, like there, there will be a market because you can see the writing uh, on, on the horizon or what do you see there? Why is it so exciting or why are we so close even though there might not be such a cost curve drop yeah, over the next 10 years?
1: Well, I think it's a combination of both. I mean the, the the difference now is that the governments are are doing the right things. They're talking the right um Language on policy furniture, and they've come up collectively with this really encouraging global biodiversity treaty in Montreal. So, with the early days of solar and renewables, you know, most governments, the British government was a wonderful example, were in the camp with the fossil fuel uh, industry, mm-hmm. saying, oh, "You know, th- this is you're a rootless dreamer." That's what uh, that's what a minister said to me on a on a platform um, early on in the. So <laughs> Revolution, a rootless dreamer. It'll never be competitive. And of course, they, you know, we had to work really hard to persuade them to come up with the policy furniture, the feed-in tariffs, and all that sort of thing. Uh, But this time, the governments are talking a really good game, and you can see that uh, reflected already in the market. Nobody, I I, I really mean nobody, doubts that this is coming. Now, the estate agents, the landowners. Um, all the people you might think would be resistant to it are pretty much saying, hey, you know, this is inevitable. Just let's get on the on the train before it leaves the station. Um, and then there's one other big, big uh, difference, I think, and that is, you know, we, we now know in the rearview mirror just how evil the fossil fuel companies were in their uh, defense of vested interests. Uh, they would say all sorts of positive things publicly, but we know what they were doing behind closed doors. Now it's all coming out. And this is, you know, a very modern form of corporate evil. Um, we, we don't have that, uh, that incumbency defense uh, today. What we have we is an
0: ag Like the, 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 let's say the chemical input industry is a, uh- trying everything they can to derail Regen and and or any type of regeneration of right. course, because their market is going right. to disappear if if that happens. So it is there but it's probably in the restoration space less because yeah how can you be against it or how can and you That's what I was talking
1: about. That's right. That's okay. what I was talking about. Uh, I was talking more about the um the, the restoration space. You 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 you're quite right about uh, Big Ag. Um, but you know it's us it, just put it this way combining the two if you um if you think that we're not going to have rewilding and nature recovery without uh, food production in its heart and that's very much part of the the highlands rewilding approach then that pooled com- uh, incumbency is not fighting as hard or as dirty as mm-hmm fossil fuel uh people did well in many cases still do of course
0: yeah Uh, i mean and is there the risk that i think some ran i don't remember the exact details but there were good or even way too too good uh, policies in place i think spain was an example and some other places where it it sort of got out of hand and retrospect retroactively things got cut uh, especially around subsidies etc so people got burned like the early some of the early investors um, we're too early, or or we're getting into projects that then didn't get the backing, or um, and so is there a risk with governments talking a lot now and then not following through, or potentially starting certain things and not not really finishing it, and and thus cutting down a, a market at its knees basically when it's just starting to stand up.
1: Yes, that's, uh, there's no escaping it. There is a risk. I mean, anything to do with the governments uh, is risky because they don't always say what they're going to do. And they are very um, amenable to, um, you know, inc- incumbency arguments. Um, that, that's why I'm, I'm so cautiously encouraged that things are different this time. If you look back on the solar revolution, for example, in the UK, we now know that around 2010, 2011, the then government um, made a policy decision to kill the embryonic solar industry. The chancellor of the day, Osborne, said to the environment minister of the day, Hune, who subsequently went to prison, of course, um, you know, you can have the wind industry, uh, Chris, or you can have the solar industry. You can't have both. I'm not bankrolling both. And so they elected to kill the, the solar industry. They, they massively cut the feed-in tariff with six weeks' notice, the amount of time it took to get modules from China to the UK. And most of the UK solar industry went bankrupt as a consequence. That's risk. You know, and a lot of people lost a lot of money then, as well as all the thousands of folk who lost their jobs that can happen. I don't think it's going to happen this time. I think what's different now, apart from the um, nature of the incumbency arguing for those kinds of evil things, is that uh, you know people are really scared by what's happening to the natural world, both the climate impacts that are emerging, and of course the evidence in front of our eyes of the collapsing biodiversity. So there's too much of a, a critical mass of people saying, hey, if we don't do something meaningful on all this, nothing is going to matter at some point in the future.
0: Do you want to learn how to invest, or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. Yeah, that argument wasn't really... I mean, it was there, obviously, but it wasn't really there around the energy space at that point. I mean, now we we were living through the, the warmest winter Ever and we had the warmest summer ever in Europe. I'm saying, and some other places have the coldest, and and so the extremes are extreme, and and it's it's interesting how that conversation shapes up. So let's talk a bit about Highland Rewilding and and what uh, you decided to to be. Let's say the first camp somewhere in the foothills, or the, on the journey to the foothills, should be like what was the approach when you said, okay, we're 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 trying to play a, a fundamental part in this embryonic industry of restoration and regeneration where did you start and why so the the first and most important thing to do is
1: to get on a trajectory where you can see um, ethical profitability down the trail because that's what you have to do for your investors obviously and um, also if you can't do that and landowners who aren't motivated the same way you are Uh, can't see that coming, then they're not going to be amenable to um, uh, changing their current, you know, mostly pretty ruinous land management practices. So that's what we've been working on. We've got a a multi-tiered business plan. And obviously, we're, we're, um, we're, we're, in, we're assuming that the governments come up with some kind of regime for biodiversity uplift credits and um, an enhanced carbon credit regime, and that will come in, you know, down the track a few years. But in the interim, we'll hold the fort with all the other things you can do on on land that that um, improves nature rather than. Then, then ruins it. So we're doing forestry, we're doing ecotourism, we're doing sustainable agri- agriculture, and eco building planning to do eco building. And so it's it's a multi revenue stream business model that we have with no magic bullets. And we're intending to wait five years before we take Um, our credits to market for a number of reasons. Um, First, you know, to give governments time to come up with sensible policy furniture. Second, so that we can prove that we have these uplifts, rock solid, AAA rated, verifiable uplifts, they won't be huge, but they'll be standard. there will be gold standard in terms of verifying that these uplifts are real, and that's going to be very important for making um, nature recovery in, investable or accelerating the investability of nature recovery. And that's basically our game plan. Game plan. So we're 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 science heavy. We've got a, a team of scientists on the two estates. We're working, doing frontier science. Um, probably way more science than we need to do to have verifiable baselines for a policy regime. But we really do want to be a world leader in in showing the way with all this. Um, and we've started that work and it, it's super encouraging. And if people don't know, our, our first two natural capital reports, I really commend them. You can download them off our website. And we have an in, a world-class scientific team um, in house, in place, literally living on the estate. In the case of the co-chief scientists, and um, we, we have we have a, a fabulous chief data scientist who uh, who won an OBE for her services to data science in the in the civil service. And you will know the the importance of all that. If if we if we do a terrific job in both data gathering and data processing, we can achieve economies um, by, you know, showing verifiability with fewer and fewer feet on the ground, fewer and fewer devices hanging in trees measuring insects and, and birds and all the kinds of things that we'll be doing to get our our, our biodiversity baseline and our biodiversity uplifts measured.
0: So basically you bought two two estates. I think you're in the process of potentially buying buying a third and brought a That's very it. heavy scientific focus to it, plus of course a lot of management changes both in the forestry and the egg side, and to really yeah. show these these changes that have been happening now for a year plus and, and will be happening for, for hopefully decades. But let's say you're you're looking at a first five year period, you're waiting with selling any credits where you're bring anything to market. But relying on the other income streams the tourism the the retreats the the agriculture piece and and the forestry to basically keep keep afloat or holding the fortress and making sure to wait until this sector of of uplifting credits develops further or matures further to basically serve you which could be earlier as well but you're taking a, a conservative approach like it, it will take at least five years for that to come so we'll Plan for that and make sure we're still around in 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 five years to to bring to market what we've learned and then apply it to others, which I think is the big part of this. Of course, it doesn't it shouldn't stay on two estates, even three estates, because Scotland is very big and the rest of the UK is enormous. Um, is that a fair um, a fair summary of of the business approach you've taken until now? Completely accurate, very very
1: uh, very good, very good succinct summary. Yes,
0: and and does it like. In case, let's say it takes seven years for, for a proper market for you that you're happy with to, to come alive. Like how do you, you, would you need to raise more or how, how long can you, you wait basically before uh, you need to, to really start selling? Um, like how, how robust is the business case without uh, credits uh, anytime soon?
1: Well, th- this is for people to judge. We've got a 100-page business plan. And we argue, of course, we would, wouldn't we, <laughs> that it's um, the assumptions we've made are conservative all the way through. So roughly a quarter of the revenue in the 10, year, uh, ten years of the plan is coming from things other than natural capital. And, um, you know, a, a good few of these we can tune up if we have to wait to use the figure you did seven, seven years instead of five. Um, you know, we we can turn up the 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 volume on uh, on these other re- revenue streams. Um, and we would you know, we would do that in order to, as you say, hold the fort and, and stay around so, yeah, we, we think that we're using conservative numbers. There's plenty of upside in the model, especially if we hit an updraft with providing um, data and land management services to other landowners who, you know, don't want to get into the kind of detail that we are and would be prepared to let us remove the pain from them um, and do everything for them for a, a reasonable and fair win-win share of the proceeds. If we persuade a, a large number of landowners to do that rather than the small number that we've assumed in the plan, then, you know, we really do have a scalable model that there could be a very attractive business. Speaking now as a sort of entrepreneur, um, as much as a uh, environmental campaigner, you know, there's there's exponential potential in there, you know
0: the service side of, of helping others to do the same, exactly. um, of course is is, is quite, quite large. And like on the investing, the banks, I know you're talking to some on the debt side, like how you said, um, we're very, very close. Why do you, I mean, we're very, very close, let's say on the large investor side in, in institutional ones, um, are they comfortable with that five year vision? Like we might have to wait five plus years for the market to mature enough to, that we're comfortable with selling credits. Is that a discussion or is that too far? Like what, what do you sense in the market at the moment in terms well, let of me, uh, long-termism?
1: Let, let me talk about the banks and the financial institutions treading, treading very carefully and being you know generic. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so forgive me for that. But um, first of all, on the lending, um, yeah, we're, uh, we we honestly think we're very close, and we're hopeful of, of an announcement during the course of the the campaign. Um, do you, we're not yet able to persuade um, uh, the banks we're talking to do uh, to to do anything um, other than completely discount any. Um, um any revenue from natural capital i mean they just assume that's not going to happen which is a very big and i think you know frankly wrong <laughs> assumption but that's the 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 risk aversion they have so it's we're in the game of obviously, leveraging the assets we have, the land, the value of the land, the value of the properties on the land, but also crucially persuading them that we have viable revenue streams in everything other than nat- natural capital. That's the state of play at the moment.
0: And I think so it's almost better, like it's more like if you're able to get a loan based on that completely yeah. not counting the, uh, the biodiversity credits or potential revenue from that, it's it's it, like it's sort of a worst case scenario, but if you're still able to, if they think you're still able to pay back the loan, it yeah. puts you in quite an interesting position.
1: Yes, and you know you could say what what risk are they taking really? Because you know at the end of the day, if it all goes wrong, um, it, you, the, the land gets sold, and you hold up your hands and say, "Look, I'm sorry, guys, we tried really hard here, but it didn't work, and now we're going to have to sell." And so you know they're they're really. In, 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 from the perspective of someone like myself, there's not that much risk. But anyway, uh, it is what it is. And, of course, the natural capital will kick in, and then the whole thing will snowball once you've started. And the other thing every, everyone will be aware is that once you start with a financial institution crossing the line, it's easier to get the next one and the one after that. So very important day days and weeks ahead. And then with the financial institutions, the ones we're talking to, um, several have said, look, this is a really great story. We do believe it's coming, but oh, we can't quite get our heads around it yet. Come back in six months. Well, <laughs> um, And so oh, we, of course, will come back in, in, in six months. But in the discussions w- that we've had, it's very clear that we have a, an interesting asset, which is the mass ownership Angle of Highlands Rewilding. This is seen as a um, by everyone who we've discussed it with as an asset for a major investor rather than a um, a, a liability. And the, and the reason is politics. Really, the politics of land inequality in a place like Scotland, and I think many other countries would would echo this. Um, if you're a, an enormous corporate and you waltz in and, you know, buy a vast acreage of of a country and then try and operate it remotely from London or Amsterdam or Rotterdam or wherever you are, um, you know, this doesn't play well with local communities at all. And, and in Scotland, very that's, extractive, yeah. that's putting it mildly. But so we have a mass ownership model where, um, you know, people can become shareholders and we're actively marketing to local communities. And as you saw with our see with our crowdfunding, um, it's going pretty well. And the story's is not over yet. It's going to be a very interesting two months. We've already sailed past our target one month into the campaign, two months to go. And a lot of marketing ammunition we haven't even fired yet. So um, this is going to be a very interesting one to watch. And and so the big financial institutions are telling us, yeah, that makes it more attractive for us because we're kind of, it gives us a degree of social license. The politicians are saying we really like this because, um, you know, it's a way for c- citizens to co-own this land in recovery. Um and of course, the local communities tend to tell us, not universally, but they tend to the people in the local communities tell us, you know, we'd much prefer to just own the, all the land around where we live ourselves. And sometimes that happens with these wonderful community buyout projects, but they're difficult to get away and they rely on philanthropy. And, you know, the second best is um, a mass ownership progressive company like Highlands Rewilding. So we're really hopeful that we've got a model here that is broadly of appeal across the the entire stakeholder base. Not to everyone, of course. You're never going to come up with that. But um, it it has appeal. And the acid test for us is the Scottish Land Commission, which um, exists to try and repair this dire land inequality situation in Scotland and their view of us is that we're much more part, and I quote, "we're much more part of the solution than we are part of the problem."
0: And, and is that something you learned from the renewable energy space as well? Where of course, there was a there was and is a lot of pushback on, um, especially larger projects, uh, not in your backyard, etc. But as soon as people had ownership, were able to invest in it, were able to to take a piece, I think Denmark is one of the countries and many others followed that have sort of mandatory local ownership when you do these kind of projects, a lot of the pushback disappeared. Uh, Of course, it's different if you push up a a massive wind farm next to your house or a solar, a massive solar field compared to a land in in regeneration. Uh, But the same principles are at play. Like if you're own, if you're owning even a piece of it, and you, you share in the upside or uh, both financially and socially. And, and of course, then a lot of the pushback um, should be less, at least in theory. Is that very much on, like, is that a lesson you learned in, in renewables? And, and how um, how are you applying, like, what kind of involvement or how much of the raise now is, is hopefully coming from uh, smaller investors compared to the larger ones? Or is it symbolic? Because, yeah, a lot of money obviously is in London and, and not... Necessarily in uh, in in local towns, unfortunately, because a lot of it has been extracted over the last centuries.
1: Yeah, the, the uh, obviously my experience in the renewables industry um, it plays here, but it's also um, you know I, it's a question of politics. You know, I'm a I'm a founder of the I was a founder of the Green New Deal group in the UK back in 2008 in the wake of the financial crisis. So you know some of these arguments are core political arguments, if you like, if you are of a liberal persuasion, and you know um, that that plays. Uh, yeah. So uh, is the crowdfunding token certainly not? It, we're we're past half a million pounds and counting. That said, of course it's not. Uh, I there's it very it's very difficult to imagine a. A situation where it's um, a, a major part of the of the total raise that we uh, have to come up with but it's, it's significant way beyond the money because of because of the um, co-ownership vehicle that it provides
0: and how important is the ag the agriculture and the food piece in uh, re- i mean the, the term rewilding is is used everywhere and everywhere and some people yeah. say it's much better as a um, wilder food production or wilder agriculture it also got political very quickly which is unfortunate um but how important is the the food side in these estates i don't know the highlands very well in scotland like how how crucial is that or is it uh, like after forestry um, still relevant i know the sheep industry is quite large but also very uh, degraded un- until now like what what's the food piece and the agriculture piece um, as you've seen now in in the estates that you're working on
1: well it, it's vital um it, because you, you we we have to have community in the heart of what we're doing um and food production has to be part of that so our second estate Beldorni, is where the rubber hits the road here this this is 80% grassland on this estate and very degraded when we bought it it was massively overgrazed by sheep and cattle but now we we have cattle on the estate we're doing rotational grazing co-chiefs of uh, regenerative agriculture are experts on this from grampian graziers and it's fascinating to watch even early impact we're not even a year into this now but there are areas where you can see species richness returning to the the tired grasslands um, and it's easy to imagine carbon going in greater quantities down into the soil. Of course, we're going to be measuring all this. We have done the baseline um, already, and that's in our second report, but in a few years' time, the results are going to be utterly fascinating as the um, as the impacts of moving the cattle around become clear, breaking up the sward just enough, not too much, getting um, – Carbon in the in the um, poo of the cows down down into the ground, and you know we 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 will measure all this, and we have great great hopes of it, and it's very good food production, and we'll be doing a whole range of other stuff um, across regenerative agriculture, including high value horticulture, as we get into the swing of things after this second fundraising round,
0: and how i mean why hasn't that been done before in a sense like the the regenerative grazing movement has been going strong for for quite a few decades yeah. um, I can't imagine it hasn't hit Scotland yet and and like why what has kept that you think to to hit more estates or more people to to change the management because it seems like um you don't need yet I mean it's a very nice extra very nice cherry on the cake obviously if you get the soil carbon credits the biodiversity credits etc but there's also a very a very simple business case in lower cost, higher quality meat or higher quality other produce why hasn't that taken off yet you think in the estates why was it you or your team introducing that a sort of new a year plus ago and thus seeing these these quite significant results in terms of biodiversity and grassland management
1: yes i i don't i think i don't know i mean i think uh Obviously, the subsidies have been important because the subsidies have encouraged behavior other than this. Um, And it's only been relatively recently that the government has said to the farming community, guys, look, look, this is going to have to change. Uh, we're not going to give you subsidies for the, the things we were before. We, we a, there's going to be a system change in economic rewards for land management. So that's all relatively new. But um, our guys, Scrampian Graziers, um, Nikki and James Yoxall, they've been experts in this for a for a number of years and and practitioners on different farms. And they're not alone. There are, there are other folk in Scotland. Pursuing regenerative techniques in this way. But this is the one area where my expertise is wafer thin. I I come to this as a real, uh, real newcomer and I'm on steep learning curves. So I'm not going to have terribly coherent answers as to as to why this particular thing hasn't hasn't happened faster. It does like like so much of the thing of the, of the debates that we have about climate and biodiversity. It all seems so blindingly obvious, but uh, why didn't it happen earlier? That's a much more um, a much more complex question, and and many of um, uh, much of the answer probably depends on neuroscience as much as
0: history. <laughs> Yeah, no, of course, and and looking from let's say the side, uh, from the outside a bit in terms of your uh, your renewable energy experience, and just looking at the ag piece, what do you think investors, but also practitioners in general, could learn or should learn about? Because we talk often about how to make it bankable, etc., etc. Um, and and that's all. It's a nice term, but doing it or getting institutional capital into the space has been um. It's starting to speed up, but has been slow because of, of a lot of different reasons. What do you think we just looking at the food or ag piece specifically should learn from, um, from the solar space of, okay, how do you get these larger institutional players um, really, really committed to it and starting to put money to work and not just talking about it, which they've been doing until now? well it's it's
1: coherent and holistic strategy and if you if you have governments that that can do holistic strategy and keep going with policies with a with a long term plan then of course you're going to do much better than the kind of slightly haphazard approach that many governments tend tend to take and in renewables the the disasters for many investors came because of capricious changes in policy from government. So we really do have to try and avoid those scenarios in um, nature recovery going forward. And as I said earlier, you know, I'm I'm more than cautiously optimistic that we will simply because, you know, to be fair to governments, if, if the incumbency in renewables came along and said, you know, um, this is this is going to be bad for you're going to strand hundreds of billions of assets in fossil fuels. It's going to be a disaster. The pension funds um, are massively overweight in fossil fuels. If you accelerate these renewables too fast, you will bring down the London stock market. You know this is the kind of thing they were saying these lobbyists yeah, from yeah. fossil fuel. And so there won't be that, those kinds of arguments this time. There can't be. I mean, you know, it's, it's not credible. And anyway, people are too scared of the collapse of the insect population and um, the devastating rollout of climate impacts. So I think we have the chance for policy coherence and continuity and let me tell you an anecdote that um, it is the kind of thing that i draw my encouragement from we we had a workshop in one in our facility at uh, Ardaki on Bunloit, we, we with the Na- the Cairngorm National Park Authority and a few other confederates. Obviously, we're working with the other organisations that want to see coherent policy furniture like us. It was a good workshop. It was all day, and a couple of government uh, officials that in kind of in, you know, were invited along. And then the next day, I had an email from Nature Scott, the government agency. Can we we heard about your workshop? Can we come to Bundleweight and have a good old tour and um and then discuss all these things with you and your team? And I said, Of course you can. You're welcome. How many are coming and when do you want to come? Answer, 30 next week. And you know, wow. <laughs> I That's don't serious. have anecdotes like that from the history of renewables. And so they all turn up, and my goodness me, what a fascinating day it was. And it becomes completely clear that, you know, there there's a, 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 there are a lot of government officials, people of talent and integrity, who are working very hard behind closed doors on a coherent policy regime, um, backed by, a, you know, a government with ministers saying all the right things at the moment. So uh, reasons to be cheerful, number one, um, you know, very different from the history of renewables.
0: And... What would you tell obviously without giving investment advice but what would you tell investors um where to look or where to dig a bit deeper or which direction like what's what's exciting to to you is it the tech part is it the the land part is it the forestry part or maybe the 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 the, the water part i mean the new estate you hope to buy there's going to be some very interesting blue carbon pieces like what's what is exciting if we would do i always say if we would do this in a theater And the room is full of investor people. We do this in the center of London, for instance, in a nice one. And what would be your main message? Like when they walk out that, okay, tomorrow morning, start working on this or start looking into this or start digging a bit deeper here and there. What would be your main message?
1: Well, um, you've just pretty much summarised it, Cohen. You, you look for you look for variety, you look for resilience in the business model, um, and you 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 listed some of the things, and there are more. So the Highlands Rewilding business model, at the risk of sounding like a salesman, has. Um, has resilience built into it because of the multiplicity of the revenue streams and the diversity of the terrains where we're operating, plus, of course, this um, data manipulation and processing component. So th- those, are, those are the things I would um, advocate looking for. And your next question then is, okay, well, you know, how many candidates <laughs> are there for investment? And here, uh, here, the, the, this is a bit of a problem it's like um the, the the there was a period with with solar when the investors were saying okay we're persuaded we we've we've put together a, a we fund and we're we're now going to start investing where do we invest and you you look around and there aren't that many good there weren't that many really good propositions and it's the same this time but it's a quality problem you know that that Disappears very quickly when it becomes clear that that the investment is starting to happen. So you know we have to just sort of break out of the catch twenty two to a, a terrain where we have a multiplicity of good investment plays, um, of which Highlands Rewilding is you know just one, um, and uh, and and the investors have. Cross the divide and are now persuaded that this is going to be a big growth story that they have to find a place in.
0: And it really feels like that's the the, the developer phase. Like how do you find the developers that are going to, the project developers that are going to create these projects and make them and, and bundle them nicely or present them nicely so uh, it's not, it doesn't feel too risky or doesn't feel too weird or too strange or too different from... Other things yeah. people have invested in, um, exactly. but yeah, you need you need those fifty million, hundred million, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, we're not there yet, but those kind of um, investable, bankable projects need to be developed in a language that makes sense for uh, big banks and and the like. Indeed. And what would you do if you would be in charge? I mean, I can guess a lot in Scotland, but maybe also outside. If you'd be in charge of a one billion pound uh, sterling investment portfolio tomorrow morning and and you had to put it to work Uh, what would be your priority areas what would be your your first steps if you would be on the investor side if it were a
1: billion pounds i'd be struggling wouldn't i um, because yeah, a bit
0: of time. Like, it doesn't need to be tomorrow to put to work all in one day. Obviously, it can be a, a longer term. Maybe you fund a lot of project developers to to create the deal flow for you or the pipeline.
1: Yes, I would be looking at scattering a lot of seeds across the embryonic industry for sure. That would be a, a good and obvious place to start. Um, and uh, you know, we're also talking about land, so I would I would look at at land. Uh, acquis- acquisitions yeah with with a sum of money like that, that that would be transformative and i think it's a bit of a straw man because you know we we need to get from the stage where we are at the moment where there are millions coming into the embryonic industry through the the tens of millions you know we need we need to get into the foothills first before we can we can say sensible things about what happens further up mount everest
0: <laughs> so it would be almost too much you, yeah. you would say so you might put part of it in solar to generate returns and then uh, part of it invest and when when the sector is more ready you can you can switch it or you can uh, put it to work in uh, in biodiversity and in Scotland Scotland's a
1: big country of course and uh, but every year there are only 20 or so of these tracts of land that that come on the market um, so you know, I, I think last year it was it was uh, something north of two hundred million of total acquisition of, of land. So you see the, the, the enormity of of what a billion a billion pound fund would 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 have to do if it were just focused on the UK. Which is so why so many of the funds that are being set up are um, are focused on on large tracts of land in the developing world.
0: And, and are you, like you chose specifically Scotland, are you interested in places, I don't know, Brazil or other places, let's say where, where things grow faster, uh, where seasons are longer, where, where, um, well f- Terms, first, like is that interesting to you, or you say let's if we fix it here, we can I mean, apply it anywhere.
1: Livable planets. So of course it's interesting, but not commercially. I mean, you know, we, we, we have to focus. Scotland's a great place to start. There are all sorts of um, terrain terrains up here where very clearly there, there's huge potential for biodiversity and carbon uplift. You know whether we're talking about peat or restoring the temperate rainforests
0: on the west coast or arable. The peat piece was massive in the first report. I remember, right? Yeah. It was quite. Was that a surprise?
1: Yeah, it was. It, it was, but I think you know it's, it's a frontier, and scientists are learning lots all the time on it. But so there's so much potential in. Um, in Scotland, and we we want to have a crack at you know helping to lead the way here first, and if if it then turns out that there's an opportunity to go further afield, then of course we will we will look at that. We will be a scaling company in every sense of of that
0: um, word. And. If you had a magic wand and could change one thing overnight in, in this space or any space, honestly, um, could also be let, let the evil fossil fuel companies disappear or input companies. What what would you do if you could change one thing, but one thing only overnight? I
1: think it would be the a pioneering financial institution saying to a company like Highlands Rewilding about nature recovery, okay, we get it. Uh, we've got an enormous... Um, endowment, and and we are going to commit to a, a program of work with you, where we'll turbocharge you through the first scaling, and do so in with the view to um, multiple investments of eight figures going forward as you acquire more land. So we're in for the long haul. We're in for you. We're breaking. We're breaking the mold, and we're we're going to hope other financial institutions will follow in our wake. That that would be a game changer, and that's a a big name plus significant ticket. Let's say yes, that's what obviously I'm living in hopes of. Without for a moment taking away uh, the importance uh, and achievements of you know the founding funders in Highlands Rewilding, you've got us so far so quickly with. quotes, only in inverted commas, 7.6 million pounds of equity invested.
0: Yeah, which is nothing and a lot of money, obviously, yes. at the same time.
1: Yeah. yeah, both at the same
0: time. <laughs> and and any other final lessons? Like and if you look now at the solar, if you wouldn't be doing this, what would you be doing in solar? Well, the thing
1: is yeah, it's the people angle, and here you know, I was I was outrageously lucky in Solar Century. I just it was a magnet for super talented people, um, and so it's proving to be with Highlands Rewilding. If you just look at the bios of some of the people that are gravitating the project. Um, that's just wonderful to see, and of course, you know, uh, a good few of them are, are really young. These are their, it's their first jobs, and they're they're doing really well. And you know, how cool is that? That that that's um, that, that's what we need, um, and that's what people like that need. They need jobs with hope, redolent with hope, um, and this is this is how we fashion a, a survival reflex in our troubled world um, by people gravitating to projects that are candles for hope and investors coming with them.
0: I think it's a perfect place to to end this conversation. Thank you so much, Jeremy, for coming on here, uh, obviously, and taking the time. And for all that you do, I'll make sure to put all the links below in the um, description and we'll be following this this over time, uh, I'm sure. So thank you so much for your time today and and good luck over the next weeks, which are uh, very, um, very fundamental and very exciting and scary at the same time, I can imagine. My
1: pleasure, thank you very much, Kurt.
0: Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. For the show notes and links we discussed in this episode, check out our website, investing in com forward slash posts if you like this episode why not share it with a friend or give us a rating on apple Podcasts? that really helps thanks again and see you next time